Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here. And uh, we've got a fun show today. It's going to be Glenn's day. But before we uh, hand it over to Glenn, let's uh, just introduce ourselves. So I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. Done a lot of things. And I'm working on four books simultaneously. One of them is on uh, how to defeat communism in your spare time. And that's been uh, both disturbing and fun to work on. I'm uh, getting through Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism, and that's the depressing part. But anyway, uh, that's enough about me. Tom. I'm Tom Price. I'm a teacher first. I teach uh, theology and ethics and philosophy. One of the places is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and am writing something that has morphed into about four books. So, But all of them are coming along and, uh, and taking great shape. So I hope to have uh, better news uh, shortly. Excellent. Great stuff. Okay, Glenn, what are we talking about today? Introduce yourself first and let's get rolling with it. Okay, I'm Glenn Sunshine. I am a retired history professor from Central Connecticut State University, a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and my main day job is as Ministry Associate for Reflections Ministries, where I am working on books and courses and a few other things. So um, the, the topic today is really jumping off of an article um, called Technology and the Return of the Old Gods. And to set this up, I want to go back to a theme that we did actually in one of my favorite shows a couple of years ago, uh, the idea of disenchantment. Now, those of you who've heard that uh, know the word ramble I did. I'm not going to do that again. But basically, the idea of disenchantment is that um, you know, it was an idea that was proposed by um, uh, Max Weber, a uh, German sociologist in the early part of the 20th century. And he said that with industrialization and modern science, the world has become disenchanted. And by that, he meant the magic, the mystery, all of these things have been stripped out of the world. Um, and this leaves people with a, um, you know, on the one hand, it could be a rather sterile environment. But Weber, Weber believed that technology and science could replace mystery, religion, spirituality, all of those kinds of things. Uh, so his hope was in that. Um, he feared that a demagogue would come along and would re-enchant the world in a really negative way, that, people, the, that he would give people meaning and purpose and direction and all of that sort of thing, and that this would this could be potentially disastrous. And of course, that's exactly what happens with Hitler. But his hope was that science would, would go in this direction. Now, there have been a number of people out there who have been recently arguing against the disenchantment thesis, um, largely because you don't really see religion going away. You don't see superstition going away. Um, all of these things continue to, to be there in the world. And if there is a disenchantment, presumably it's only among certain kinds of elites, the Richard Dawkins of the world and people like that, perhaps. But that's about it. Most of the rest of the world is still operating with a kind of enchantment. Now, I'm not really entirely convinced of that. Uh, if we're looking at the recent past, I think that that's correct. I think that since the, let's say, the 70s, there's been a rise in various forms of spirituality in the West, replacing traditional religion. We've talked before about neo-paganism. Uh, we can talk about new spirituality, which is my preferred term, rather than new, the New Age movement, which was a very specific subset of new spirituality. Um, you know, we can, we can look at, at these kinds of things. And I can tell you uh, from my college students that at least at Central, at least at the university where I worked, there, we were not living in a materialist, secularist kind of world. You know, when I would do a class, um, I, I did a class called Witches, Werewolves, and Vampires. Uh, the subtitle was Superstition and Popular Religion. And the interesting thing is, when I did that class, I had people in class volunteer, stick up their hand and say, yeah, you know what, I, um, I, I had uh, someone threw a curse on me. And I had to go to this woman in our apartment building who knew about these things and had some skills to get the curse lifted. 
And they were just very serious and very matter of fact about it. Right. So there, there is a kind of, you know, even in the midst of everything else that's going on, there's this sort of spirituality that's in place there. What the article points to, however, is that in addition to call it that sort of spirituality, these, you know, the, the resurgent paganism, uh, the Caribbean religions, um, those sorts of things, there is a kind of spirituality that is associated with technology specifically. And as we're looking at the growth of technology and the impact of technology, artificial intelligence, the internet, um, meta, all of these things, we talked about meta before as well. He sees this as a kind of return to old religion with technology substituting for the spiritual forces in the world, the angels, the demons, and perhaps even God himself. So that's yeah, the key. Yeah, I, I, I think this return to enchantment is something that Peter Berger, you remember Peter Berger back uh, yep. in the 70s, 80s, so forth, uh, noted as well that um, what we've got is, well, I, I think it was Berger who said, we have a nation of Indians you say, I think, let me put it this way. He said, if, if India is the most religious country in the world and Sweden is the least religious, we have a, a nation of Indians ruled by an elite of Swedes. <laughs> but I'm not even sure that's the case anymore. Um, I think that we see in some really odd places elites opening themselves up to some things that maybe they're, I guess, intellectual uh, forebears wouldn't have been open to. Right. I think that's correct. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think that uh, similarly, uh, I mean, a few, a few things to kind of qualify the picture. Um, one, of, one of the things that allows science to take on this kind of uh, mystical slant, if you will, um, partly goes back to the kind of constructed world the Enlightenment gave us, the way in which Christian things become immanentized um, and they become kind of inverted from the transcendent to the imminent. Um, we saw this at one time with, with nature for a while, and then nature kind of gets, once it becomes something that can uh, determine us in ways we don't like it, we can kind of shove it. But technology allows us to kind of be gods in a way, um, in the sense that we can understand enough of patterns of nature to control them and then direct them and orient them. And then they allow us to extend our natural capacities to almost God-like in, in kind of classical attributes, capacities, capacities to, to um, extend our power reach, um, airplane and fly, right? Um, you know, uh, the fact that we can do this right now, be in different places and communicate. I mean, there's almost this kind of ubiquity and, uh, you know, this kind of transversing the temporal in ways. So, so you see that there is something that um, through, through natural science, there is something that highlights a certain aspect of our being made in the image of God. And that we do have this, I, I would say, um, commission to 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 uh, uh, dom dominate in the right way, um, creation, cultivating it in the right way. Um, but we have the temptation that goes with it is as this knowledge increases, our fallenness and the temptations um, go beyond reach and they create that. And then one last point. I don't think the naturalism on the nature plane goes away here. I still think it dominates the kind of public um, disposition. But what, they, what it does is it plays on that compartmentalized spiritual sphere created by modernity, that place where you can have God. And that realm is very disconnected from our embodied natural uh, world. And so it tends to be very uh, Gnostic on the one hand, or, uh, you know, new agey and, and, you know, disconnected on that level as well. I haven't seen a full integration yet of, of that kind of spirituality with, with a, a, you know, full view of the creature. Yeah. Now, what we're seeing, according to the article, is just that kind of integration. Let me read a little bit of this. 
actually probably more than a little because they're the first couple of pages I think are really critical. <laughs> At the close of the millennium, David Noble published a book with Penguin titled The Religion of Technology, in which he explored the spiritual underpinnings behind the modern technological vision. In the book's introduction, Noble commented on the strange fusion of rationalism and spirituality that now animates the technocratic impulse. Quote, although today's technologists in their sober pursuit of utility, power, and profit seem to set society's standard for rationality, they're driven also by distant dreams, spiritual yearnings for supernatural redemption. However dazzling and daunting their display of worldly wisdom, their true inspiration lies elsewhere in an enduring otherworldly quest for transcendence and salvation. Uh, Noble then is, you know, connects this actually to Christianity, um, particularly the idea of redemption. Um, and, but, but he argues that the, we, we draw this sharp distinction between spirituality and science and technology. And he says that's artificial. This is another quote from Noble. With the approach of the new millennium, we are witness to two seemingly incompatible enthusiasms. On the one hand, a widespread infatuation with technological advance and confidence in the ultimate triumph of reason. On the other, a resurgence of fundamental faith akin to a religious revival. The coincidence of these two developments appears strange, however, merely because we mistakenly suppose them to be opposite and opposing historical tendencies. Um, the article continues, the intersection of religion and technology has seen the rise of a new mysticism with what Wesley Wildman and Kate Stockley refer to as, quote, the brave new world of consciousness hacking, excuse me, consciousness hacking and enlightenment engineering. It has seen the rise in a new eschatology known as the doctrine of the singularity. It has seen the emergence of a new corpus of prophetic literature, such as Ray Kurzweil's The Age of Spiritual Machines. The spiritualized techno technocracy even offers its own vision of transcendence with the pseudo-mystical cluster of, of ideas that now surround theories of augmented reality and metaverse. And now, to top it all, Mark Zuckerberg has held out technology as the answer to our spiritual longings through a series of bizarre innovations ranging from apps that enable us to pray through machines to conversations with church leaders about how Facebook can enhance our worship to attempts to colonize religious experience. <clears throat> Quote, Facebook is shaping the future of religious experience itself as it has done for political and social life. End quote, commented Elizabeth Diaz in the New York Times. Yeah, this uh, reminds me of Lewis's comparison in Abolition of Man of magicians and science scientists mm -hmm. that there was a greater degree of common, commonality than is often supposed. And there was a, there were the alchemists who were looking to transform the physical world in a quest for, well, you know, famously for gold, you know, trans transforming base metals into precious metals, but also eternal life. They, they were, you know, they were looking for that. This was the, the intellectual milieu within which Baconian science emerges. It's just a different technique that is being espoused. But the objectives are the same. They're, the quest for pure science is the thing that I think we can all support, which is trying to understand the physical processes of the material world without it. And, uh, you know, sort of a, a, an attempt to make a profit or find an application just to understand. But there's always um, the the economic component that quickly follows. It's, it's sort of like the comparison between, you know, missionaries and um, commercial ventures in, you know, early modernity. The missionaries would go into an area make connections with the native populations. And then before you knew it, the guys who were doing the work of trying to figure out how to trade with these people showed up. Mm -hmm. And you've had the same thing with uh, pure science and applied science. The technologists are just right behind the pure science guys trying to figure out ways to make a buck. Yeah. The interesting thing is Tolkien's definition of magic 
is the attempt to impose your will to dominate uh, on nature or other people. And this is why he associated, well, first of all, he viewed magic as evil, and he associated magic with technology. Mm-hmm. He's famously something of a Luddite. Well, there's that marvelous interchange between Lady Galadriel and Sam and Frodo. Sam asks, you know, he says, I want to see some elf magic. <laughs> you know, he's, he's one, and, and, and she, get, you know, has the, the mirror of Galadriel. And she says, I don't understand what you mean by that. You seem to apply this to the deceits of the enemy as well as the craft of the elves or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. And her point is, is that we're not engaged in magic. She's, they, they, they think of themselves as doing something different. Right. Yeah, it's 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 also interesting the the way in which on the one hand it has you know it, it, Noble's interpretation in particular has a very um, you know a Christianized uh, form of the scientism in its you know mystical endeavors, um, and I mean I guess other people could read it a little bit differently, and they do a lot of the East people out of the Eastern traditions and stuff who still c- kind of share a similar uh, way of, of integrating kind of uh, s- separate spirituality with, with um, our, uh, with technology. But I think a couple of things are worth asking here just on a, on a basic level that, that are really worth the conversation is, I mean, one is what is it that would drive technology in the direction of the spiritual? What does it say about us? Um, what does it say about us as longing for immortality, um, immortal longings, as Fergus Kerr wrote a, wrote a book some years ago? Um, what does it say about our desires are incomplete with the way things are and contingent, dissatisfied? Um, so there, there are a few things here going on that, that counter some of the other currents in the situation we're in, where people are looking for a technological solution to satisfy them in their contingency now. Right. Um, I mean, there are a lot of places to kind of explore this kind of uh, this this disposition. So it is interesting. He says, you know, the return of of kind of the these the old gods. Um, That's a big question. And then another one that I think uh, is related, but this can kind of we can bring this up at another point. But I think this this is really something that we haven't thought a lot about as Christians, but the way in which motion changed in, in the West and the way in which science picks up what God used to do. Um, you know, you had clearly uh, traditions and philosophy of unmoved mover and theological reflections on the, the significance of God being the primary, primary cause of all things and the way secondary causes work. But the way in which physics gets severed from metaphysics at a certain point, leading to kind of the voluntaristic science of Newton and the instrumentalizing of reason and the imposition, almost we become almost like demiurges again, um, this time not the eternal logos ordering things towards the end of being the mediator, but we are the mediators and science is the instrument. So it's almost like science replaces the church as the vehicle of Christ's presence in the world or the, the forming presence to bring things to this kind of higher perfection. Yeah. Well, one of the so, things that it's, it's come through in my research on totalitarianism is that it's precisely this that distinguishes totalitarianism from tyranny in the, in the past. The, the, the ambition to, uh, bring order to a world without it. Yeah, th- th- there, there, there are so many themes that are picked up later in the article. But, but the thing that I, I wanted to note here particularly that I thought was, was really striking is his assessment of things in terms of religious categories. You know, there's a, there's a prophetic corpus, there's an eschatology, there are all of these things. And I think that this is picking up on what what um, Tom said that that we are incurably religious people because yeah. the nature of reality drives us that way, whether we we want it to or not. But we are also in the presence, in a lot of ways, of mystery when we're dealing with technology. Um, so he says, consider pre-modern men and women were obsessed by how their lives were controlled by non-human agents. And we too seem haunted by the primal angst of invisible phenomena exerting causal power over human affairs. 
It is no longer angels and demons with which we must contend, but proprietary algorithms, data in the cloud, and invisible bots that mysteriously organize our lives and whose caprices must be pacified through an ever-expanding network of rituals, code words, and esoteric knowledge. Hmm. And this, in turn, brings us, um, uh, well... We've begun to looking at the bots that control the, that ecosystem, much like our ancestors looked upon angelic and demonic forces. The parallel is not unwanted. Deep learning networks are notoriously opaque and thus not dissimilar to the forces channeled by occultists. Right, right. Yeah, it, 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 you know, it reminds you of, you know, think of Pythagoras, right? I mean, here, here you have a figure who is working with the mathematical and, and, and something that is kind of connected to everything, but not reducible to everything. And then it is flooded with the mystical. Um, mm. it, it, and, and you think when it gets lifted up out of that, you see where the connection to magic comes from completely um, when it isn't governed by um, a fuller theological vision. And, and you can see that it becomes can become like a code and series of things that only a certain group have the capacity to interpret indirect on the one hand. Um, so you have your, your religious hierarchy and then you have you have the, the pull on our natures for the transcendent, which allows that to become something very attractive. Yeah, my mind moves in a couple of directions quickly on this, and one is who's to say that the demonic, traditionally understood, is not involved in this? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to go there eventually. Okay. Um, but uh, to Tom's point, significantly, the new technocratic order not only has its own version of demonic possession, but boasts a cast of priest kings <laughs> through which the rule of our robot overlords is continually mediated. <laughs> These rulers who echo ancient god kings in their aspirations are the ones perceived to truly understand the inner workings of the digital ecosystem in which all of us now live and have our being. Hmm. With data analysts as their soothsayers, these god kings gain access to the esoteric knowledge inaccessible to the rest of us, knowledge through which they can control us. They then communicate their Gnostic knowledge to the masses in vagaries that approach but never quite achieve full coherence. What is the true meaning of violating community standards? <laughs> Only the technological priests know for sure. What criteria are used to determine what counts as misinformation? Why are videos with the word vaccination targeted for removal, but not content using the word inoculation? The answers to these questions remain shrouded in mystery as we try to decode the ever-changing updates and policy statements of our own technological priests who stand between us and our algorithmic overlords. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, related to that is stuff that I'm seeing in the work on totalitarianism or the research and the documentation on it. And that has to do with the caprice, the changing of the rules on a regular basis. The changing, You know, we see it in 1984 where uh, we have two uh, competing powers to Oceania and and they're at war with one. Then midway through the story, they become, uh, you know, at odds with the other. And then they sw they switch, and and then everything changes in the sense, not that, um, you know, there's no longer a war, but that they've always been at war with this other party and never were with the with the first party. That you know, we've always been at war with these people, East Asia. I can't remember the names of the of the of the powers, but but the the whole point is is that. Within a, a totalitarian, uh, in, you know, regime, you've got this this almost necessity to keep things in flux so that no one ever can fall back on what would be a, a kind of rule of law to be yeah. autonomous. You know, um, I, I just read something, and I wish I could remember the quote correctly. But it was from the Stalinist era where they kept rewriting history every, you know, pretty regularly. And one of the jokes that circulated is that the problem that we have today isn't that we don't know what will happen tomorrow, is that we don't know what will happen yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, the Ministry of Truth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there you talk about demonic. I mean, they, just, mm -hmm. just the imagination being used in such a sinister fashion to be that many steps 
you know, ahead, you know, relatively speaking, of the people that are going to be impacted by this, that they're always conniving of ways to create conditions for the kind of totalitarian, um, you know, hold that they want to keep. And I mean, yeah, I mean, we, we see it politically probably now, even in our own country and in the West more than ever. And it almost becomes laughable sometimes, but people I think feel, you know, helpless and then they become targeted when, when they do kind of to voice things. Um, but there is that same manipulation, that sort of I am the science, you know. Okay, so I, right. I, I'm the final say because I have power behind me that's going to make me be the final say. So basically, just look at me as, you know, the mediator between true science and humanity, right? Um, right. And that, no, one, no one is permitted to question or examine or call into question someone's reasoning based on what, is going on even in reality around us. I, I saw this fascinating study. I think it was uh, Eugippius from Germany. You might mm -hmm. follow him. He was looking at some studies on who are the people who still mask, who are the most likely to mask. And it's young people under the age of 30 that are very liberal. So <laughs> these people are people who consider themselves the most scientifically informed people nevertheless they actually are not reflecting the nature of the science or the findings that they're the least vulnerable and that the masks don't do anything anyway <laughs> well this is this is yeah. curious because this is where the the other dimension here probably uh, you know is worth talking about is the the way in which this can actually promote superstition like we saw with the extremities of, of the pandemic. I mean, right. this way in which, I mean, I still see people driving in their cars by themselves wearing masks. I mean, right, right. <laughs> to, to create that kind of uh, mindset um, or generate an atmosphere of fear in such a way to create that kind of, you know, to use Charles Taylor's term, a porous self that they're going to be contaminated by you know, without yeah. having this buffer. Um, yeah. That's exactly where my mind went. I went right to Charles Taylor on that very thing. <laughs> well, true confessions here. I was, in fact, driving by myself in the car with a mask the other day. And that's because <laughs> I was at the doctor's office where they required it. And yeah. when I walked out, I forgot to take it off. <laughs> yeah, okay, but so I, my hunch is these people, <laughs> the people I'm seeing... Uh, there, it's not one of those cases. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, yeah, and it, in my case, I've got a, a mask that's designed to be used with beards so that they don't crease, and it's actually fairly comfortable, <laughs> all things considered. But anyway, that, that's beside the point. Um, interestingly enough, Chris, um, yeah. the, he made a reference to demonic possession in, in the quote that I had earlier, the technological version of it. As humans become more machine-like, for example, unable to think independently, communicating with predictable talking points as partisan automata that mimic the behavior of bots, meteor scholars have begun reaching into the quasi-spiritual language of demonology to describe the phenomena. Yeah. That's what we're talking about right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's exactly right. And I've seen it. And, you know, it's, you're dealing with somebody and you realize there's no reaching this person. This person is completely possessed by an ideology. Yeah. yeah. The, the, what worries me even more than that is the, I mean, is the way in which the technology can be used, not just contrary to scientific fact and numbers and things like that, but to actually change the way we perceive and interact with the world more broadly. And again, I'm not talking here about ideological stuff. Um, again, to quote the article, meanwhile, as more aspects of reality come to be mediated through our machines, the distinction between actuality and simulation, real life and AI, reality and fakeness become not only porous, but trivial and irrelevant for, for many. The next holy grail of the tech industry is actually to erase the distinction between real life and simulation. And he's talking about virtual reality, augmented reality, uh, enhanced reality, all of those kinds of things plus people who live in video games. Right. Like a primitive savage whose world is haunted by demons and shadowy forces, we may soon live in a shadowy nether world where the phantasmic is mistaken for the real. Right, right. 
Well, we're already at a point where people don't know what's real anymore. Mm-hmm. Where when we talk to people about, say, their identity, it's not even stopping with, I want to be the opposite sex. It's moving on to, I want to be a cross between a human and a tiger or whatever. People, furry. Yeah, I want to be a furry yeah, or I want protean, to be a robot even. Yeah, yeah the, the protean, you know, lost self. I mean, it end, ends up, you know, forming whatever it, it is, is on its whim at that particular moment. And technology, again, can serve. And there's a big industry. Be, I mean, I'm hearing horrific reports of children's hospitals and, yeah. and you know, um, younger and younger ages basically castrate. I mean, stuff that we would have thought voodoo in, you know, kind of witchcraft a few years ago is now right. considered affirming care. Um, and they're, pu- they're pushed into it fast. Yes. Yeah. 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 It it becomes a kind of status symbol for some crazy people. Look at my child. My child is trans or whatever. Well, and and, and and around. And you think of the the kind of go around here. Now you have schools systems promoting it. Now you have the children's hospital where the kid's going to go get its shots and vaccinations. So so the parent who kind of skips out of the school does this still has to go take their kid usually to some someone who has proper training who has now been informed and in promoting this kind of thing and then you couple that with what we talked about biopolitics and the way in which parents are being severed uh, more and more from biology and then also their own children um you're you're messing you're you have a very manipulatable situation and and this is i guess another part of that the question is this kind of i I saw a lot of this kind of scientist you know mystical scientism promoted sort of as you know the old um final frontier stuff of the old enlightenment you know the old star trek but now it's become a really dark sinister thing because the conditions uh the the you know, that we saw with post-modernity didn't end up becoming embrace of the other. It become, it became uh, control of, of every, you know, everything that isn't other than this small group of people. Um, and now technology has that totalitarian reach institutionally as well as. Um, right. What, what I'd like to explore a little bit is the infusion of values. So, if we think about science on its own terms, it's supposed to be uh, a descriptive enterprise. This is what's happening, not prescriptive. Uh, the prescriptive follows, and that's subject to debate. What should we do about this? You know, what, why uh, should we do this instead of that? That's completely out of sight now for most folks. Even that part is for the experts. Why somebody who has a degree in or knowledge about you know, uh, planetary climate science is the authority on the economy and what is feasible in the economy is just crazy. But people don't even, you know, wonder. They just kind of hand the keys keys over to the guy. But the other part of this is, you know, where do, do the values come from? And this is where I think Gnosticism is the perfect religious outlook for the tech technological age that we find ourselves in because it's yeah. a kind of a welling up from within this secret knowledge. You know, the, the article talks about terminology that's probably not familiar to a lot of our listeners, but Apollonian versus Dionysian. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. The idea of Apollonian is a society ruled by, by reason and rationality and logic and order. Contro- yeah. Controlling the chaos. Yeah. Right. The difference. And it, and it comes from Apollo. Yeah. Now, the opposite direction is Dionysian after Dionysus or Bacchus, the god of intoxication. Yeah. Right. And that, that's chaotic um, and orgiistic. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and he says, you know, the curious thing and think about the Internet. The curious thing is that it was presumably designed to be an Apollonian environment, rational reason, all of that kind of thing. But it's turned Dionysian. Yeah. It's turned Dionysian both, well, look at the ubiquity of, of internet porn. Um, but along with that, um, it's turned Dionysian in the sense that it's become the means 
by which people escape into fantasy. Right. And again, we're talking VR, all of those kinds of things here as part of that. Right. So he says the ultimate irrationality of all of this comes from the fusion of an Apollonian mechanism with a Dionysian result. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, think, I think that it's inevitable, though, in a sense, because the Apollonian is incapable of providing value. If it's mm -hmm. purely descriptive, purely rational, you know, Lewis talked about reason being the faculty of, uh, you know, logical discourse and the imagination being the, the place where meaning comes from. Or right. where where meaning is apprehended, I should say. Maybe that's a better way to put it. So there had to be some some filling of the gap. There's there's this this void, this vacuum that had to be filled. Where are we filling it? How are we filling it? Where's the where is the content coming from? So the Dionysian is the only place to go. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is interesting because a lot of the um, debates with theology and postmodernity were just about the way in which they are, the postmodernity ripped from sound theology is caught up in that dynamic between the Apollarian, not the uh, Apollarian, oh, I can't even say it right now, and the Dionysian. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm having tooth surgery, so I'm not, I'm not able to say a few things right now. Um, so, but anyway, between this kind of rigidity, and this kind of chaos, you, you tend to see the back and forth. They would argue using these, you know, kind of examples, these types, that you have enlightenment kind of imposing a kind of unified, rationally grounded scientism. And then you have the postmodern allowing all those others that were not allowed in that picture to kind of unleash their chaos. But they don't have a true transcendence that allows for unity and, and distinction to, to actually be able to be a part of the picture without this kind of uh, violence, if you will, or conflict, or attempt to dominate one way or the other. And this was always a part, I think, of what the Christian Logos and it, its way of talking about the, both the inherent rational order of things, but also the beautiful and, and theophanic nature of things that create the, the visibility of all difference within creation manifest in all of these different ways um, the one God that is in, in all of that beauty and perfection. So they don't have to work with that kind of breakdown that the fallen world has left them in. And so there is kind of a, a, a restoration. Um, and so, and, you know, but again, uh, I think that that enlightenment picture Basically, um, what gains Christianity brought and allowed for science to kind of take hold um, got got hurt was hurt when um, basically the analogical index that uh, where the, the the visible creation manifested the transcendent God was ripped from it, and so now you're back in this this drama between um, this strict sense of order or this chaotic, and that science is trying to bridge that which creation, I, I would argue, um, well, you in know, its restoration. Yeah, yeah I was introduced to the figure of Johann Hamann. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But he was a contemporary of Kant and yeah. a, crit a critic of the Enlightenment from the start. Yeah. And he could see where it was all going to go. It is, it's not as though we didn't have prophets who yeah. were speaking to, and Kant and other Enlightenment figures respected him, and he was a great you know, mind, but he was also a very real, uh, genuine, believing Christian. And yeah. he, he, he knew that if they tried to divorce reason from God, that this was going to be the outcome. That's right. Another person who had sort of a prophetic outlook on this was, as usual, C.S. Lewis. Uh, I couldn't help thinking about the end of that hideous strength, where you have these people who are supposedly hardcore scientific rationalists into objectivity and things like that, who end up literally worshiping Satan and, and falling into magic, falling into sacrifice, falling into all kinds of things. Um, because Lewis intuited, and I, this is one I don't get, but Lewis intuited that if you go in that direction, 
that's where you end up. Yeah, I think that I, Lewis, I, can, I can see how Lewis got a lot of his ideas, how he under, how he figured a lot of things out. That's one that I wouldn't have seen coming. Yeah, I think that that hideous strength continues to rise in the estimation of many people. 1984 and Brave New World, as great as they were, you know, as great as those dystopian works are, they miss something really important. And neither of them are able to get you to a healthy place. At the end of both 1984 and Brave New World, it's basically despair. And they're very ugly, you know, pictures, but, you know, where do you go from there? Lewis knew where to go. And I think Lewis's analysis is, is the deepest of the three, precisely because he knows what the better alternative is. You know, the community at St. Anne's that you see and all of that. Yeah, I think I think with Lewis, I mean, Lewis and Haman, I think both shared a, you know, a robust classical vision and cl- classical Christian vision that understood what well, didn't have a broken and, an, you know, analogical index to the transcendence. I mean, one could see it with Lewis when he talks about the way in which, you know, in, in the abolition of man in particular, when he talks about, you know, on the one side, you've got pure angel, the other side, you have pure animal or ape. And it's what you were just talking about. It's that that aspect that brings those two into balance, that that Imago Dei. And, and there were other you know classical philosophies that tried to address it. Faculty psychology had, I think, a better grip on it than most anything that's out there today. Um, so he was able that and with Haman, the same thing. I mean, he understood that that uh, when certain enlightenment pictures were starting to develop and their indebtedness to the breakdown of, of sound analogy in creation, um, language was being severed and culture was being severed. And those are the two, two places in particular that Haman wanted to really get his, his uh, hand back around. He said, because what ends up happening is you end up bracketing the supernatural to, to outside of the natural altogether. And that's what Haman saw happening, and that's why his turn back to language and culture as two of the, the analogical places in which it, it, God's presence through the Logos um, should be continually seen in light of Christ. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. The, the other thing that I think is really telling with Lewis is his recognition that these kinds of things, the the science divorced from God, technology divorced from God, uh, all of those kinds of things are actually driven by the demonic. Um, we tend to think of them in terms, of, well, the way we, we've been raised. This is just the human mind going in this direction. And if you're a presuppositionalist or anything close to one, you know, you can talk about it in terms of worldview. You can talk about it in terms of, um, you know, the rejection of God and therefore the development of a logical system apart from God, if you want to do it in a, a, some of a theological frame. But we can't forget that the invisible world is real. And we can't forget that there, is, there are demonic forces out there that are genuinely trying to lead us away from God, that are genuinely lying to us about ourselves and the world. This is the challenge and, is, is to how to bring these things together. So reasoning is, of course, something that is important. But as you noted, we tend to do that now thinking of that um, with the assumption that it's just ideas that we're fighting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and this is something you brought up earlier, Chris, right at the very beginning. You said that, you know, the, the he uses the analogy of demonic or something like that early on. And you said you're not sure how much of an analogy it is, something to that effect. Uh, I think you're exactly right. I think we have to pay attention to the fact that there are genuine spiritual forces at work here. I have a speculation, and I'm not sure I'm entirely serious here. But I have a speculation that one of the ways, or probably the primary way, that the invisible world interacts with the visible world is through energy and at the level of the electromagnetic spectrum. That this is how it influences us because our brains essentially operate using electrical impulses. Our bodies do the same. This is how I suspect the demonic works in us, but also it makes technology particularly if I'm right, 
and like I said, this is pure speculation. I can't sure. prove any of this. Right, right. But if I'm right about this, it makes technology and things like the internet a playground for demonic forces. There's a, a whole re realm of possibility that's opening up with some really serious thinkers. Everybody knows we've come to the kind of the end game with materialism. Mm -hmm. it, it, but what what's next? That's the thing everybody's wondering about. So I, I'm reading Thomas Nagel's book, you know, Mind and Cosmos right now. And and in that book, you know, he, he's a vitalist. He, he's reintroducing this this idea. He's trying to find some alternative to transcendence and Cartesian dualism and idealism and materialism. He says, you know, the, you know, from his perspective, they all have flaws. So he's trying to find a way to think about life and consciousness in a way that is really much more in harmony with older ways of thinking about these things, which is fascinating. And then I was reading Matthias Desmet's book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism. And his point is that until we get beyond this mechanistic understanding of the cosmos, totalitarianism is going to be with us and it's always going to be a threat. We have to get back to a more mystical understanding of the cosmos in order to prevent totalitarianism from returning to the, you know, to power or, or asserting itself. And he, he's, he's looking at when he, you know, he actually looks at phys the physicists, uh, people like Max Planck and uh, Heisenberg and all those guys as reintroducing mysticism. So his point is the most, the more advanced the science is, the more it's open to the mystical, the sort of the, the, the further behind it is, the more it's crude and mechanistic in character. Well, you see a lot of the, phys, uh, you know, especially astrophysicists and the like will enter into those kind of philosophical debates that you won't see a, a typical biologist or zoologist enter. And even though they don't tend to be Great. I mean, you you could have someone. I mean, you think someone like John Polkinghorne at uh, at uh, I think Oxford, who you know converted to Christianity, um, and he he could hold his own with any of them, um, and and he's someone who really kind of pro probed into these dimensions. A uh, Stanley Yaki or Jockey from some years back, he had his own kind of. He was still a bit more indebted to kind of. He wasn't as mystical with some of those things, but he was he was quite sound theologically on on his. Well, he was a Catholic priest. That's right. <laughs> That's right. It's uh, and and so um, that, yeah, I mean, you see, you see, they'll enter into some of those things, just like you know Einstein would. I mean, it's, sometimes it'd be you know walking by the river kind of chats, but they were thinking in those directions. Um, but, but I think you say, I, I mean, I've read more than once from, from these kind of figures that, yeah, bi biological science is still very beholden to voluntaristic Newtonian, um, you know, frame of things. And it's way behind in terms, um, of, of the kind of fines and speculations they're doing with the, the most fundamental aspects of, of, you know, the cosmos and, and everything else. And, and, of course, there is the kind of the fascinating aspects that we can't manage with our own apparatus um, at a certain point. Um, and that, that the, here's this the, here's this play between the, you know, the ordered and and the, the chaotic happening and yet bringing about. Yeah. Um, one, one of my parishioners is a mathematician and works for a high-tech firm out of Silicon Valley. And we were having this very conversation. He was, you know, we were talking about the quest to control through ana analyzing um, physical objects. And the more precise you try to get, the le less you can say with certainty. Yeah, that that's the thing. So it's 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 there's a kind of a law of diminishing returns. If we're talking about the the trajectory of a cannonball, we can yeah. we can say a lot about that. It's going to land here and it's going to do this much damage. But if you get further down into the yeah. fundamental structures of what's going on, you, you, you your language breaks down, your analysis yeah. breaks down. You you can't know uh, with the level of certainty that you you want. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I saw a um, 
this showed up on my fa Facebook memories, um, a joke about um, Heisenberg. Um, Heisenberg, uh, Schro Schrodinger, and Ohm are in a car driving, and they get pulled <laughs> over. And the Heisenberg is driving. The policeman says, do you have any idea how fast you were going? And Heisenberg says, no, but I know where I am. <laughs> and the policeman says, you were going 55 in a 35 zone. Heisenberg throws up his hands and says, great, now I'm lost. <laughs> he goes, the, the cop thinks this is suspicious. So he goes, he asks them to open the trunk. They open the trunk and there's a dead cat in it. And he says, did you know you have a dead cat in your trunk? Schrodinger says, well, now I do. <laughs> so he thinks this is really wrong and decides to arrest them. So, of course, Ohm resists. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to have a little bit of knowledge uh, when it comes to physics to get the jokes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so I so, guess the thing that I'm wondering about is, are we talking about a new sort of ground for uh, a new religious awakening or a new religion. So a religious awakening would, would imply that every kind of religious outlook could find some basis for inspiration in, in the developments that we're talking about. Or are we talking about a new religion emerging that is technological in character? Uh, I, I think that the reference to uh, uh, old paganism is correct. What we're really seeing here isn't the emergence of a new religion, but it's an, uh, a reemergence of an old religion in new guise. You know, what we are dealing with is a kind of techno-gnosticism. Um, it bears actually a striking resemblance in some ways to some of the things I saw when I was in Mongolia uh, at a Tibetan Buddhist temple, where they had banks of cylinders that were inscribed with prayers and that had prayers on the inside of them. And people would walk down the row spinning these, because if you spun them, it was the equivalent of saying prayer. So they go down, spin, 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 get to the end of the row, go to the next, go, go back or go to the next row, do the same thing. And they just spent hours doing this. It was a way of mechanizing prayer. And what you see in some of these, um, some of the things like, uh, uh, well, they reference uh, people, you know, developing things so that you can pray through a machine. It's really no different. Or you could say, I'm praying without ceasing and hit repeat. So you say your prayer, <laughs> record it, and then just hit repeat. And it's going on from that point on without ceasing. Right. It's kind I of mean, a weird you know, way to think about it. But. Yeah, there, there are <laughs> there are there are elements of Eastern religion in this, uh, which is connected in some ways to old Gnosticism and paganism and things like that. I think that that's what we're seeing emerging out of this, because if you don't have Christianity as your religious foundation or Judaism or Islam, what's left? Right. Right. Well, and it's also interesting because it's you know there's a article some years ago uh, first things back when uh dbh was writing stuff that was tolerable um his 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 article uh, christ and nothing or nothingness um I, I think one of one of the best he he's kind of in my opinion um put out there but where he's really talking about when when you know when christ was proclaimed um basically it was the death of all the old gods um and there is no Nothing other than nothing um, for the old gods to, to claim as territory. And it's almost as if technology is becoming a space not, by, in their mind, not claimed by Christ to which these old gods can return. So it is demonic and sinister. It is, even though Christ is Lord, it's almost, if you, if you think of what, if you think about what human evil is, it is the privation of good, right? And, and so it is, it is the, something dark that we do with the, the good being we have, right? And it's shadow being. Is, I mean, think of the ring wraiths in, in uh, Tolkien, right? Not really fully anything because they are privation. 
Um, yet there is something there because they're contingent on being in order to have any, you know, to have whatever they are, the shadowy like being they are. Technology almost becomes shadowy like here shadowy like being it isn't reality but it depends on reality in order to have that shadowy simulacrum of reality so here here's a here's a you know thought experiment if the metaverse comes into being is that something that can be redeemed or should it be destroyed <laughs> Yeah, and that, that's actually a, a really good question. Um, we have a tendency instinctively, I think, given our cultural background, to think of technology as neutral. The problem is technology isn't necessarily neutral. Uh, evangelicals in particular are famous for jumping on every new means of communication and technological bandwagon that they can instantly. <laughs> Um, the question is, is some of this stuff, well, I think that there are certainly good uses for the internet, but when you're starting to go in the direction of a lot of these things, when you're looking even at, you know, I'm on Facebook, but with, again, the bots, with the algorithms and things like that, it's, it's completely opaque. You know, when I get when I get something that pops up on my feed talking about misinformation, nobody put it there. And sometimes, and sometimes those bots have been listening to you. I know in my That's case right. that things come up that are just too, too, too coincidental to have to come up that they, I, I had been talking about something or maybe made a post about something uh, half an hour earlier and then boom, there it is. Yeah, or or just look at the way advertising happens. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it, it keeps pushing back. What in the world are they? <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Well, this is what the article talked about, Tom. Yeah. It's the box yeah. and the algorithms <laughs> and things like that that are completely opaque, that are completely mysterious. So we've and got to go determining, to determining, and right. directing, di well, di directing yeah. the soul, if you will. But this is exactly what Elon Musk and Twitter are, are arguing over right now. Yeah. And they're kind of, yeah. they're suing each other over bots. Yeah. And so I'm on Twitter. I've been on it since April. I've got 3,000 followers. I have no idea if, you know, half of those people are even real, you know. Um, and how would I know? Some of these mm -hmm. bots can actually interact with you pretty intelligibly, you know. Yes. They, they respond, you know, they're able to post things <laughs> you know it's it's not just a an like a like a like an avatar with no nothing that mm -hmm. it, you know nothing that produces right yeah so i I, the, I don't know if any of this stuff as it exists now can be redeemed mm -hmm. i think that when we're looking at these things that are controlled by these impersonal forces the bots and the algorithms and things like that. I don't know that there's a good way of, um, of redeeming it, to be honest with you. Yeah. There may be, uh, it may be a failure of imagination on my part, but these things are designed. They are programmed to program you. Mm -hmm. And by the way, as I've pointed out in a number of other occasions with other groups lately, when you are attempting to control another person through magical means, that is one of the definitions of black magic. Yeah. Well, we These see. bots are trying to operate on the basis of what is dangerously close to classical understandings of black magic. Yeah, I think Instagram is particularly dangerous for girls. I think that video games are particularly dangerous for boys. And you, you can see even physical characteristics that indicate that these kids have just become totally immersed. So when I, I can look at a girl and say, you spend a lot of time on Instagram, don't you? I'm thinking when I look at her, I see a guy and I think you don't get outside at all. Do you You spend all of your free time online? Um, you're pale, you're sickly, you're weak, you're, in, you're you just don't look healthy. Um, so I, you know, there, there were times when our ancestors cut down the oak, Right. And it was for everybody's good, but it was an 
it was a bold and dangerous act that was performed. And I think that that's something that needs to, we need to re- reconsider that maybe this is a time for that. I, I'm with you, Glenn. I, I, there's a part of me that wants to celebrate every human achievement and figure out how we can use them in you know ways that enrich our lives. But there is something about a lot of this stuff that just doesn't seem like it has enough upside. Yeah, at the very least. Now, this this is the problem that we run into. How do we communicate with our audience? That's right. We, Here we are. You know, we we well, we do it certainly through the podcast, mm-hmm. but we do it through Facebook. We yep. do it through the grumblers. Yep. yep. You know that that's how we do it. Can we get off that? Mm-hmm. Well, we could, but then we shut down the channel of communication. Yeah. So I think that the answer is it may ultimately, in a very real sense, be irredeemable, but we can go into it, I sus- I think, it's okay for us to go into it if we approach it with due caution and care and understand that it's trying to shape us. You know, uh-huh. we're, we're in the antithesis of Romans 12, 1 and 2. Well, the, the bots, the, the algorithms, the, the, God, the, the God priests, all of those people out there are trying to shape us. And if we're aware of that, we can guard against it to some degree. Yeah, there's something that we could do, uh, maybe some kind of even mental talisman that we could keep in, keep in front of our own minds. Is, you know, it strikes me that we're going into the, you know, into Sheol and preaching to the spirits in prison, you could say. Yeah. There's this. If something, there's something to that, and may, we have to make sure that we don't become ghostly, unreal, spectral things ourselves in the process. Well, and I and I think that gets to also that was something you know I, I know we've all spoke on before and, and talked about and and groups we're with is, is is the retrieval of of thick habits of sound spiritual practice that are anchored in and the church that has been tested throughout time and in its witness. Um, We've talked about, you know, prayer and, and, uh, and, you know, just, just the way in which life was ordered around Christ in every way through so many generations, Um, whether it's family worship so many times a day, meeting for matins and even so whatever they are, those things that hold you and yours in in the communion of the saints and with with Christ and the Trinity, those things are the way in which we don't become easily manipulated by these alternative forces or you know what others have called alternative liturgies. Um, they're singing all around us. The, their votaries are everywhere. Their signs, their symbols, um, and yeah, it's hard for a lot of our children and stuff growing up in this to know what the long-term effect is. But right now, something we do have and has been tested throughout time, go back to, to the Psalms. I mean, look at the way David dealt with all of these things. Not to say he didn't have moments of temptation and fall, but he also had the avenues of lamentation, repentance, um, reconnection, and, and not being lost in the end. But well, we should probably wrap this up. Uh, any thoughts, Glenn, as we do? Um, d- there are also, it's worth noting, a number of good ministries out there that work to help particularly parents um, deal with the pressures their kids are under. Um, there are a number of them that are uh, promoted over at Breakpoint, that they've got some really good information. There's a good conference coming up on that. Um, there's access. If you're not familiar with that, you should look up access AXIS. It's that's a ministry to help parents understand the stuff that their teens are going through. Um, all of these things, you know, there are tools out there to help, but as Tom said, we also have to make sure we have our own act together, uh, as adults, as, uh, I assume most of the people listening are adults, but we have to make sure we have our own act together in terms of our own walk and in terms of constantly guarding our hearts because out of them flow the things of life. Right. Guarding our hearts, guarding our minds. And that's, and in an internet-dominated age, that is 
really, really challenging. And if they get the neural link working, it'll even be more challenging. <laughs> well, we should wrap up. We really do appreciate your interest and support of the Theology Podcast. You've made it all the way to the end of the show. And we uh, often at this point say thank you to our Patreon supporters, to people who give to us at the Fight, Laugh, Feet uh, Network, people who give to us through Anchor Podcasts, and even people who send us occasional occasionally gifts right directly through our uh, website, uh, thetheologypodcast.com. So thank you for your support. We really appreciate it. It does pay the bills. Well, that's enough for now. Bye-bye. Bye.